Hi, welcome to the Cancel Proof Podcast. I am Paul Escanone along with Jason Rink over here. We are two ma- filmmakers making unapproved movies. Right now we have two films in production, Q Sent Me at QSentMeMovie.com and The Steel at TheSteel.com. Um, today we are uh, introducing and welcoming for the first time on this podcast a guest, and it's a very special guest. His name is Nicholas J. Fuentes. Uh, Nick runs the America First Foundation, and he hosts a show called America First uh, Nightly uh, at 9 p.m., and it's sometimes a one-hour show, it's sometimes a three- or four-hour show, and it streams on Cozy.tv, a platform that he built. Uh, Nick is arguably one of the most deplatformed and censored men in America, and he's been able to achieve that title at the young age of 23. So without further ado, welcome him in. Nick Fuentes, how are you? Hi, I'm great, thanks. Good to be with you. How are you guys doing? Hey, Nick. Uh, it's good to talk to you, and I uh, appreciate you joining us today. Hey, yes, great to be with you, too. So, Nick, I believe you just recently had your five-year anniversary uh, doing America First. You started at a young age, and I believe you started on RSBN streaming and went uh, independent shortly thereafter after they said, oh, we don't want you on this platform anymore. Can you tell me a little bit about just how that experience has been five years on? Did you ever think you'd be here at this point? And I know your story is... You just had to convince your parents to give you a year of, of, of giving it a shot and seeing if you could make it. Now, I, I would say uh, you've made it. Tell me about that experience. Sure. Yeah, it's uh, yeah, it's been a wild ride to celebrated five years, like you said, a couple weeks ago. And I never anticipated I'd, I'd be doing this uh, for this long. You know, if you had gone back in time when I was at RSBN and said, you know, where do you see yourself in five years? I'd probably wouldn't have said doing the show still and uh probably could have never anticipated that it would have gone in this direction in terms of you know and obviously it's uh has a lot to do with the way the country has gone over the past five years but what stopped the steal and obviously the events of one six and all the consequences and the fallout from that um but but yeah initially i came to my parents and i dropped out of college really to pursue this full time and I said, give me a year, you know, because they were on my case about, oh, you need to get a job. You got to go to school. I said, well, let me try this, see how it goes, see where it goes. And if it turns into something that's uh, lucrative or, you know, if it turns into a career, then obviously that won't be a problem. And so I had been at it for about a year and it became clear that it was uh, headed somewhere. And over the past five years, it just sort of I've been riding this Trump wave and, and really just this national wave in politics ever since and uh one thing has led to another and and now here i am in a sort of unique and precarious situation but well yeah certainly i would say i've made it uh in, in some sense nick uh one thing i was uh noticing uh when i was watching your show and and you have an extreme level of comfort and the ability to sit in front of essentially a green screen and talk directly into a camera, nobody's there. Um, you know, you have developed that skill to be able to carry a show for the couple of hours that you do it. Um, I, I think a lot of people don't recognize how difficult that can be or that it, that it's not just easy for anybody to do. Has, is that something that you feel like has just really developed over the time? Was that difficult for you to do at the beginning? Yes, yes. It, it took a lot of getting used to because it is a very 
unnatural sort of experience, um, you know, because for the viewer, it seems very, it seems very normal, you know, like, and you guys are film guys, obviously, so you understand this well, you know, when you're consuming content, there's not a whole lot of thought, I think, for the consumer on how things are getting there on the screen, on a technical side of things, and also all the planning, script writing, you know, everything that goes into it. And so similarly, when you're doing a monologue uh, for the viewer, it's very natural. It's it's sort of like a one way conversation. But to do it, it's like you said, it, you know, when you strip away the, the digital effects and, um, you know, if you take a step on the other side of the on the other side of the screen, it's you sitting there in a room by yourself talking at your computer uninterrupted, at least in my experience, uninterrupted for one, two, three hours and initially, yeah, it's, it's a very strange thing to get used to because um, in most conversations, there's a there's a give and take. And so both sides are adding something to the you know, adding different elements to the conversation. And so you're initiating things, but you're also responding to things. Uh, but with a monologue, of course, you're you're perpetuating the, the subject, you're perpetuating the, the monologue for the full time. And there's there's no response. You, you're not really getting to see the reaction. Again, you're also not responding to anything. Uh, so it was and I think if you go back and watch my earlier episodes, um, you can see it, it was a little more awkward. And, you know, there's some things getting used to, like, when do you take a breath? When do you swallow? You know, there's a lot of like psychological things you wouldn't maybe think of if you haven't done it before. But, you know, you do anything every day for five years and you get used to it. So I, I've gotten used to it. Now, can you talk a little bit about how you've had to do end arounds uh, against being deplatformed from all these sites, and now you're uh, hosting or you're hosting your show on your uh, Cozy.TV, a platform that you've had to build essentially from the ground up, uh, kicked off of YouTube, obviously, a long time ago, was streaming on DLive that, you know, early last year you got kicked off that many people would just... Um, sort of give up or throw their hands up in the air and be like, you got me, you know, you know, I lost. You deplatform me. There's no other channel. Um, you seem to continue to rise from the ashes, if you will, or at least continue to um, get your message out. And uh, can you talk about that whole process of building that and how you've been able to achieve that? And now I guess, you know, you're up to 11, 12,000, maybe more now. I don't watch every stream viewers on some of your bigger streams. Yeah. So, you know, for a long time, uh, there was this problem, I, I guess, really, since the beginning of my career, I sort of got into this at the worst possible time, um, because, you know, during the Trump election, it was very easy to go virals. I mean, that was really the golden age. Um, Trump utilized the Internet like nobody else. And so sympathetic people in politics were gaining a following on YouTube, Twitter uh, and other mainstream social media very easily and very quickly. There was so much interest in politics. Trump was really the engine of this uh, this huge wave of right wing people sort of taking over social media. And then, of course, this dramatic turn of events, this in some ways contributed to Trump's getting elected. Then the social media companies began to respond after uh, the election, after the inauguration, which is right when I got into the fray, you know, right when they start the censorship, right when they start to close things down. That's when I get my my start. And so it's been a problem since at least 2017, going back a little bit further than that, actually started to see people getting banned around 2015, 2016 in the earliest cases. And 
you know, when that all started, I think it caught a lot of people off guard. It was very alarming because you look at these social media giants and it was, you know, it seemed insurmountable then. And even more so now, I mean, the social media companies then were so powerful. It's, it's a monopoly or an oligarchy or an oligopoly. And these companies have only gotten more powerful as time has gone on. And so when they initiated this censorship wave five, six years ago, um, it was a, it caused a big panic because I think people looked at it and said, this is Facebook, this is Twitter, this is Google. How do you fight back? I mean, there's nothing out there. There's no alternatives. There's no clear legal uh, recourse. Um, so there was this big open ended question. What, what are we to do? And. You know, so there was a lot of advocacy and people were trying to bring attention to it, but there was no clear cut solution. And certainly right wing people couldn't mount it because you go viral on YouTube like a, you know, an average person is just doing, a, you know, they're making content in their their office or their bedroom or their basement. How is the average person going to mount a legal battle or a government battle against Facebook? It, you know, it just doesn't happen. Um, and so what happened initially is people would get cut down, they'd get censored, and then that was it. You know, some tried, some gave up, but either way, there just wasn't a clear path forward. And so people just said, well, you know, banned on Twitter, whatever, their biggest platform, they would just pack it up and go. And so I came into it basically understanding that that was the trajectory, you know, from the beginning. I anticipated that I would be banned from everything. And so unlike a lot of other people who and I don't know how this is even possible, but, you know, a lot of people when they got started, I don't think they ever anticipated or thought of that they would ever get banned. A lot of these people, maybe it's ignorance, lack of forethought, but they get into it thinking, well, this will last forever. You know, I'll just I'll just grow bigger and bigger or I'll plateau or I'll just keep making money and this will go on forever and I'll never have to hedge or come up with a backup or a plan. Um, and, and then when they get banned, uh, that's it. Um, but for me, you know, I anticipated from the beginning that that's where things were headed. Total deplatforming, not just losing one or the biggest platform, but total deplatforming. And so from day one, I had a mind towards, you know, it's always going to be contingent. YouTube is not going to last forever. Twitter won't last forever. PayPal, none of it. And so from the beginning, I was always planning about what's the next step. So I always had a backup. When I was on YouTube, my backup was Twitch. When I got banned from Twitch, my backup was DLive. When I got banned from YouTube, I moved to DLive. After DLive, I put it in motion to build my own website. When I got banned from DLive, I was able very quickly to turn my website on. And, you know, I've been working on it for about a year. And so just about everything has been like that. You know, always just having a plan B. And really, there is no long term permanent viable solution to big tech, unfortunately. So there is no end all be all. There's no like permanent. And that's unfortunate. There's no permanent platform for us. I mean, we have to always be thinking about that. But in the meantime, uh, you know, we've just got to be flexible and adaptable. And that's really how I've overcome is and we it's just one of these things where I mean, I can't come up with a competitor to Google for my show on my own, but we can always sort of stay one or two steps ahead with these emergent alternative tech platforms or new technologies or strategies. And so, you know, I've just always tried to stay one or two steps ahead. And that's what I've done. 
Nick, it's interesting to me, you know, the the first uh, platform I was suspended from was Twitter, and yet that happened to be one of the last platforms that you were, were taken off of. What was it? Why do you think it took so long for you to get taken off of Twitter? And what was it that that they gave, or what was the reason? Do you even know what the reason was? That's a good question. I've been asked that my entire career, honestly. You know, people have always said, how are you still on? You know, when I was on Twitter, they would say, how are you still on Twitter? And I would say, I don't know. Like, I should have been banned. Yeah, Alex Jones Alex Jones asked you that, didn't he? Like, oh, what's, what's going on with this guy? He should be banned by now. He did, yeah. And he was sort of, like, suspicious of me. It was like a real question. He was like, okay, what's what's the big idea here? Why aren't you banned yet? <laughs> and I'm like, I don't know. Like, I'm, I'm cool, but... I have no idea. And it's, it's true. Yeah. I, that was the last major platform that I was banned on. And I think the answer is more simple than most people assume, you know, there's sort of two schools of thought on, on all of this, not just the censorship, but the whole deal. And one school of thought is that everything is extremely calculated, extremely planned. Um, It's all deliberate and somewhere they're getting together. And I'm talking about the elites and they're plotting out the stolen election, the COVID pandemic, you know, white genocide, depopulation, you know, whatever. Um, and then the other school of thought is that it's it's a lot less deliberate than you think, that, you know, you've, you've got this highly interconnected network of decision makers and institutions and money, and there is sort of like a confluence of different interests and a confluence of different agendas. And there's, for lack of a better phrase, there's like an invisible hand that is pushing society in a certain direction based on, you know, these incentive structures. And and I guess it's sort of uh, there's sort of a spectrum here. You know, certainly there is some coordination and then some things are less coordinated. I think when it comes to social media censorship, there's just no consistency. I think that the big accounts, you know, the big pundits and influencers these are decisions that are made on a discretionary basis. I'm sure that the you know trust and safety teams are making a decision. I, I know that the trusted flaggers like the ADL and SPLC are involved and they give guidance. And then ultimately, I think the final decision rests with people that are higher up. So if that's Jack Dorsey, if that's uh, Susan Wojcicki, if that's you know some someone else higher up in the food chain, and um, you know, so when you look at the enforcement decisions across the, fl- the platforms and between people on a particular platform, it's very difficult to parse out a consistent rule or a consistent standard. I really do believe it's a case by case basis. And there's probably a lot of factors that play into it. And so as far as my ban on Twitter, I, I just don't know. I mean, I guess I just got lucky on that one. And then, um, you know, the other one's not so lucky, but it, it is sort of bizarre, bizarre how that works that. And that's that's the complaint, I think, from a lot of people is not necessarily that there's rules or consequences, but that's really getting to the to the heart of the matter, that it's so inconsistent. It's completely opaque. You know, it's not transparent. They don't explain their decisions. There's no accountability. There's no redress. They're just making these arbitrary decisions at their discretion based on a completely random, unknown criteria. And, you know, things that are that big and important just can't run like that. You know, this is social media. That's the medium for the national political conversation. 
and who gets to participate in it and who does not get to participate. Well, I mean, that's up to the, the tranny editor and their mood on that given day, you know, and their, their hormones, you know, whatever, and whatever kind of mood they're in and what the news cycle looks like and the political dynamic, you know, and, and that's going to be the, the difference between you get to participate and you don't. And something that important just can't operate like that. It, you know, it just doesn't make sense. So Nick, what, I don't what, know. What do you say to the up and comer, say the, 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 the young person out there who was the, you know, you five years ago who has a, you know, agrees with America first messaging, maybe more mainstream conservative political thought, maybe young and a little edgy and wants to do a show and is starting out, isn't banned from anything yet, but has a Twitter, has a YouTube. And they're looking at, you know, this pervasive thing that's sort of hard to quantify, which is like self self censorship. Um, you know, if you were to have a, you know, a younger brother and, and he wants to be like you and you were guiding him in how to navigate being somebody who is yet to be deplatformed, would you A, even say this is a good route worth going and B, how, how would you suggest that they even navigate that from the from the jump? That's a good question. Um, and I get asked this a lot because I know a lot of young men who look up to me. And they they want to do what I do. You know, they're inspired by me and they want to become the next Nick Fuentes or whatever, Tucker, Alex Jones. And I, you know, the first thing I tell them is just don't, you know, just don't do it. Um, You know, it's sort of like that quote from the Sopranos, you know, and they're talking about the mob and they say, you know, you ever feel like we got in at the end of something and the the golden days are over. Now, certainly I, I hope that that's not the case here, but. It definitely feels this way, you know, because like I said, I, I got into this uh, as the the whole deal began to close up. And, the, you know, the reality of the situation is that although we want things to turn around and we're trying to survive here and what we're doing is necessary, um, it's just getting harder with each passing day to do this Fr- from every on every level. You know, the medium to relay a broadcast the ability to monetize with the payment processor, even even have access to fundamental services like banking or travel and 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 everything else, lodging. Um, so the question is like, you know, well, so, somebody wants to get involved. It's like, OK, well, there's no way to broadcast your message. There's no way to make money off of it. Then you're going to run into all kinds of legal and financial difficulty. Um, it's just it's just not a good you know, it's an industry where if you haven't already broken out, if you didn't already break out and have a following that'll go with you to, to these uh, alternative s- services and sites, I just don't think it's going to happen. And if it if it does, it's really difficult. So, I mean, I would say for most people to, to stay away. And then for people that are involved, um, you know, really, it's an all or nothing thing. I mean, you've really got to go all in and be willing to do whatever it takes. And it can't be about the money. It can't be about the fame. You have to love it, you know, because if it was about those things for me, I would have quit a long time ago because you get all the worst aspects of fame, which is being under a microscope and the infamy, the negative consequences with like almost none of the practical benefits. And then the money is a very tenuous thing, too, because you get banned from credit card processing. I mean, say goodbye to doing any kind of volume, you know, in terms of money. You got you really got to get creative. Um, so if I were in love with it for those reasons, it, you know, I would have quit after January 6th. But 
you have to be so in love with it that you're you're willing to do anything and you got to be hungry and if you can't do that i mean you will fail so i mean that would be my advice nick i wanted to move on uh a little bit about more uh in the news topics this has been kind of a wild week uh for you when you think of the louis Thoreau documentary that was released on sunday uh, Jason and I worked on a documentary um, also with you that was released on Monday. And then yesterday you had your deposition for the January 6th committee. It's all three days, uh, or I guess, yeah, yesterday. So within four days, all that stuff happened. So I wanted to talk to you a little bit about those topics. Um, first, a little self-serving, we'll talk about our film, which is a docuseries that we made. We interviewed you last summer, followed you around for a little bit. And we wanted to hone in on the story of your or how we see it as political persecution. So episode one, we looked at um, the government seizing money from you. Episode two, we looked at you being placed on the no-fly list, and you did give an update after you premiered that episode on Monday that, as far as you know, you're still on the no-fly list, so you are still a person who can't board an airplane in uh, in his own country. You can't fly domestically. You can't fly internationally, and you have not been charged with a crime uh, related to anything, any of your, uh, you know, activities around post-election or anything else. So, um, tell me about your decision-making process when guys from the outside like us say, Hey, we want to follow you, visit you, do a story around you. How did you, why did you say yes to that? And how, how did you feel about the whole project as you've seen it unfold? Well, for you guys in particular, I knew you guys were active during Stop the Steal. So, um, you know, in my opinion, that that was the ultimate test was Stop the Steal. If you were there, if you were on the ground, you're a patriot. I trust you, you know, because that that was really the that was the make or break moment for us. You know, I mean, and for for many reasons, which I, I could get it really into that but that's really sort of outside the scope of the question uh, but that that was really the main reason is you guys were involved in stop the steal and and every every patriot who really cared was deployed on that on that uh, during that historical moment um and then the process i think the process has been great i mean i i love the way the documentary came out i thought it was excellent um everything about it the the graphical work the editing the storytelling thought it was tight it was clean uh was very very well done so i i was very happy with that and I, you know i've done a lot of these documentaries over the years i've done a lot of press and film projects you know at this point it's uh it's all very standard to me you know the the procedure the, the setup the miking the the whole deal um so i'm i'm just sort of used to it but it i thought it, it's been a good experience and it's nice to uh, do a documentary where I'm the good guy, you know, or I'm the, or at the very, at the very least, you know, the, uh, the narrator, the, the viewer is supposed to be able to discern for themselves. I mean, every other media I've been in for the most part, it's just been, uh, it's been a hit piece, you know, they, they try to capture, uh, some kind of gotcha moment or whatever. And then they, you know, they paint you as a bad guy, but, it's important to, to tell a, an actual real story about what's going on. And if people want to see me as a bad guy, you know, whatever, that's their prerogative. But, um, you know, I'm interested in this as, as journalism as opposed to, I mean, it's good propaganda, but, uh, but it's also important that people just simply know what's going on as opposed to, uh, you know, being told what to think about it. Yeah. And Nick, it's interesting. Um, 
the you know the some of the challenges we've had in getting um, our films Q sent me and the steel you know made or distributed as we're going through this process is you know we know that if we would make it from a certain perspective we'd have no problem in fact we we could have already had it out probably if we were ready to tell the same story that HBO or the regime like wants to tell about the events and it's like hey we've got stories here that are from the inside, we actually know a lot more about what was going on there than those those people do. And so when when the Thoreau doc was coming out and and then we've got the this series coming out, you know, it's interesting because um like there's this sense that as long as they're gonna do a story that might show you in the ultimate negative light, then that's gonna get greenlit. But the, the projects that might show it in a different perspective that, again, is, is truthful, those are the things that you run up against or people are going to want to th- throw you under the bus from even doing it. Like, you know, us from a perspective like, hey, can we even do a doc on Nick? Well, if we do it and it makes him look terrible, sure, no problem. But if we do one where we actually bring it to it the lens of, hey – Nick is like the canary in the coal mine around some of these really important issues and who else is going to tell that story? So, um, you know, I just, I just have noticed that. And I wonder from your perspective, seeing what we produced with you and then you, the Thoreau doc came out, what are some of your, I know you've talked a little bit about your initial thoughts about it. Uh, but as far as your hesitation and maybe working with them, if you had any, and then how you feel like they actually portrayed things. Well, it was it was sort of interesting because, you know, I knew going into it that it was going to be a hit piece. You know, I I think anybody who's familiar with Louis Theroux and his work uh, understands what he's about and and his style and his angle there. Uh, It was not exactly a big surprise. I, I saw the director for the film. He got on Twitter after it premiered and he said, oh, we oh, we infiltrated hate which okay. is just such an asinine characterization. I mean, there's, you there's invited no him into that. your home, right, Nick, you invited them. Right. And that yeah, was their infiltration. infiltration. <laughs> they crafted, yeah, they right. crafted a perfect email to get in there. <laughs> yeah. Right. And I infiltrated McDonald's when I went there to get my egg McMuffin this morning. Right. I infiltrated, uh, uh, Q scary, Q scary music while Nick says that. Yeah. There, there's the yeah, doc. Bum, bum. Uh, yeah, you know, just ridiculous. Um, but, but, so, you know, and these guys act like they're super sleuth, like you said, right. I mean, they send an email, hi, we're Louis through. We want to, you know, do a hit piece on you. Um, you know, so I knew what it was about, but the finished product was actually sort of surprising because, and this has been pointed out by people that like me and people that don't like me and people in the media that, I actually look good in the documentary. I mean, and and like I said, this is people on both sides that dislike me, people that like me. Um, They all said, uh, people that don't like me said, well, the documentary is dangerous and it failed because it portrayed Fuentes in a positive way. And then people that like me are saying, hi, you know, joke's on you. You came here to get a hit piece and you just made us look good. And it's, it's actually sort of a puzzle, you know, because uh, I I don't believe that Louie is sympathetic to us in any way, um, but they had to have known if they watched it back that it was, uh, I mean, maybe you would assume that they would have to know that it, it was not the hit piece they were hoping for. I don't think it made us look 
evil or dangerous. And I don't think it really made us look stupid or anything like that. Um, and then, and then I guess, you know, maybe my conclusion on it would be something like this, you know, to your average viewer, I think I came across as, uh, you know, well enough. Some people said articulate and, uh, you know, maybe funny, fun, whatever. And so maybe the idea is that our liberals like Louie, our liberal elites in particular, are they really just so out of touch that, you know, maybe from their perspective, I did come across as a total, you know, in their mind, maybe it was a total hit job and we look crazy because they're so out of touch. But for an average person, you know, from their subjective interpretation, you know, I came across as someone relatable. And well, Nick, know, so- I just want to say to, to, to Louis's credit, when he's talking to you and I think it's like in a in the ballroom pre FPAC and they made the editorial decision to let you talk about demographics and race and how you see things. I was watching that going, man, they could have cut this out entirely. But them choosing to put this piece in there, it's like it's kind of a head nodder. Like I'm like, okay, yeah, like I like a lot of people see things that way. And you don't say, you know, you ask the question, you tell Louie, you say, you know, race is a big part of it, obviously. And the question is, if we replace Americans with people from outside of America, is it really America anymore? You say that's and you frame it up. That's the question. And you say my answer is it's not. And, you know, I mean, at least they gave you the room to to say your thoughts, you know, in, in ways that they didn't have to. And I'm like that that was that was good on them, even though there was a lot of bad on them. But that was good. Yeah, I totally agree. And, and that's why I say it's a little bit of a puzzle, because, you know, are, are they are they trying to be fair? You know, perhaps. And that would be a bit of a surprise, because I, I feel like a lot of what he has done. And maybe that's just, you know, my uh, maybe I have trust issues with the media. That's maybe been you, my do. you might Nick, you might have trust issues with the media. <laughs> yeah. Um, but but yeah, for him to include a lot of it, you know, you're right. I mean, that one in particular and even some of the other stuff It, uh, you know, it'd be one thing if they got me saying, I don't know, you know, they edited, it, cut it in a, in a certain way to make it sound like the worst thing ever. But. Yeah, it wasn't the worst soundbite. So you have to wonder well, you know, what they kind of be. I was just yeah, going to say, yeah, it, it almost feels like, you know, they put that in and then, you know, I could see, I'm an editor too, so I could see them going, okay, I guess we're putting, you know, somebody's makes the call, we're putting that in and I can almost see like an assistant editor, cue up the women can't vote. We got to at least put the women can't vote in there, you know, and, and it's like <laughs> they're trying to balance it out in this really herky-jerky way. And then I just wanted to say, and I wrote this quote down from the document, I rewatched the documentary this morning just to kind of, you know, prepare for these questions. He shows you, you know, the time that he spends with you, and then he has a voiceover where he says, this is his quote, and, you know, and he says it in the Louis Thoreau voice. It was shocking to hear Nick's vision using lies and distortions to promote an ethos of white identity and racial divisions. And this line comes off the backs of no lie or distort. Like, there was no lie or distortion that anybody could see. You're just telling him how you see the world and how you see America and what your kind of purpose here is. It was just so on its face wrong. And like, so he did not do service to himself there. He did service to you, I think, by letting you say what you believe. But then he just calls it a lie and distortion. You're like, what do you, what? What was a lie and distortion? (laughs) Yeah, well, and, and that's really the premise of the whole thing, which is, you know, and towards the end he says, 
Um, you know, they use irony to cloak an ambition that is deadly serious. And, and, and that's really the premise of the film. And, and that's the entire liberal premise against us is, you know, the America First movement is actually something that has a lot of appeal. You know, I think a lot of people that voted for Trump and a lot of conservatives, they hear the America First message and they think it's reasonable. They watch us and they think we're funny and likable. And then so the liberal premise is like, oh, you think they're funny? Well, that's just a cynical tactic to, you know, kill black people or something. And, you know, they go, oh, well, you, do you think he sounds reasonable? Well, he's just lying. His real views are far more sinister. And, you know, at a certain point, you just have to say, like, you know, well, maybe you're just wrong. You know, if you're this liberal, maybe you're just wrong. I mean, because the, and that's really the problem is they their starting position is, well, we disagree with you and you're evil. Then they hear us talk and they go, hmm, you know, that's not so bad. Hmm, this guy doesn't seem angry. He doesn't seem hateful. Well, well, but he has to be, you know, because he's he's this he's got these views. So he's got to be the bad guy. So let's walk it, you know, let's rationalize it from behind and say, oh, well, it's it's all just a big facade. And that's like a convenient way to retcon it, basically. That's sort of like a convenient excuse to say, uh, oh, you know, these guys might not seem so bad, but that's just because it's all a big act. Yeah, well, like, you know, well, within, within a five-minute period, the viewer is supposed to see America First aligned people as a dangerous threat to democracy but also watch Baked Alaska in his Pit Vipers sing tw his Twitter is gay song. Like, those <laughs> two, like, we're, those are the dangerous guys. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it's sort of difficult to square. You know, you see this <laughs> guy in the bleach blonde hair and the, the USA t-shirt and, and generally just sort of a jovial guy, and then they ask him about the Christchurch massacre. It's like... You know, once again, how, how out of touch do you have to be? I mean, how how talk about a uh, twisted you know view of reality, warped and and dishonest. Um, you know, for them to capture that on camera and then put the voiceover and you know interject these questions about oh you know slavery. You know, at one point he was asking Baked Alaska about you know the white majority and. He goes, well, you know, I want it to be like how it was a couple hundred years ago. Well, that was when slavery was going on. And, you know, Bake replies, he goes, yeah, well, I don't support slavery. Every time I think in in the movie he tried to do like a gotcha, you guys just didn't take the bait. And, and it was great. I mean, it's great to see that. Yeah, well, and, you know, I think it's because a lot of us or all of us are just so sincere, you know, and that's maybe the irony, you know, when these journalists would do a hit piece years ago about the alt-right or whatever. I mean, they get some pretty bad clips. And I think that's because, I mean, those people there, there was a nastiness that was just underneath the surface. It didn't take much, you know, you scratch a little bit and you, you would find anger, you would find hatred, you would, you would find so, sort of an issue. And, um, with us, I mean, we are who we say we are. We're, we're not, crazy we're not psychos we're american patriots we're christians i mean we're the normal ones here we want to return to a country that was normal you know that, that we grew up in and so try as they might to uh to to try and bait and goad us into saying something weird uh you can't do that because it's not there you know i mean and, and you're right i mean they asked beardson baked me that you know all these leading questions and uh and even during the interview process 
the stuff that wasn't on camera, they would ask me about a thing I had said or whatever. And I would, I'd elaborate on it in detail and they'd say, okay, okay, that's too much. Can you just explain like how you're a white nationalist? And it's right. like, well, no, right. dude, like, yeah, no, we're not. So, uh, so yeah, I mean, and that's where I'm a big believer in. I just am who I am. I wear my heart on my sleeve. I'm authentic. And, you know, I, I do, I do kind of rely on that. I'm, you know, maybe I rely too much on that, but I, I have a belief that if you just are who you are, uh, that will shine through, you know, that, that will, you know, if there's no hate, if there's no anger, there's only so much you could do with the editing and the music. I mean, yeah. you're the same guy on camera. Yeah. So, uh, I think that's what that was, what was coming through there. Well, we want to pivot real quick to uh, something else that happened this week, which was the the January 6th deposition uh, that you gave. And so this was your your time to kind of give your version of events or answer questions, I suppose, for the Jan 6th committee. So, you know, to the degree you're willing to share about how that went, what that was like and what this process has been like for you, what can you tell us about that? Well, it's been very burdensome um, because, you know, with the subpoena and not a lot of people know how this works. You know, some people are saying he's innocent and you know, this kind of stuff. The subpoena comes from Congress, you know, and Congress doesn't have the power to charge or prosecute. Uh, so it's it's really just an investigative thing, um, you know. And so so I got subpoenaed a few weeks ago and they compel you to turn over relevant documents as well as, uh, you know, they compelled me to testify. As far as the documents go, it's a, you know, what they're really doing here, and I'll just speak generally about the whole deal, is they've done this to everybody. They're just working their way down the list from Trump all the way down. Everybody that was peripherally involved with Stop the Steal or 1-6, and they're, and this exact process, they're doing it to everybody, hitting them with the subpoena. And they subpoena all the communications, all the bank statements, all the documents. They get a deposition. And what, what they're really doing here is they're creating this huge treasure trove of documents and trying to link all these people together. And, and what they're doing is basically inventing this grand conspiracy where there wasn't one. And so they're subpoenaing all these documents, all these communications, text between everybody so they can get a paper trail between everybody in the MAGA movement and paint this picture of big conspiracy like because they couldn't find an insurrection. They couldn't find a coup. So they're trying to point to, you know, here's here's a, and map out with this uh, subpoena power from Congress, the, the entire, you know, Trump right wing network. And so they they compelled me to turn over documents. I haven't turned over anything yet, um, you know, but but they want like, OK, anytime you talked about uh, stop the steal between the election and today, we need mm. that. It's like, that's impossible. I can't turn. <laughs> you know, I'm a, that's my job. Every time I've talked about one six, every time I talked about the election, like it's just I can't do that. Um, and then as far as the testimony goes, I, I could not testify. I had my deposition yesterday and without going into too much detail, um, you know, I'm, I'm currently the target of a FBI investigation. So, um, you know, so I, I refuse to incriminate myself. I didn't sure. answer uh, nearly any of their questions. Um, so that was the situation with that. But it's, it's just this just like with the Trump, uh, the Russia hoax. It's just this big political witch hunt. It's this big opportunity 
for Democrats in Congress to grandstand and to use their, uh, you know, use their congressional power to to uh, spy on, investigate and, and really just bully the Trump movement is, is all that it is. Nick, I wanted to ask you and we cover, you know, we cover some of these questions uh, in the mini docs that we did um, that came out recently. But you're a person who is arguably one of the most censored, um, one of the most deplatformed and being persecuted for your political beliefs, essentially, right? No crimes. You go in front of a webcam or a, it's a little bit better than a webcam. I'll give you credit for that. And you talk to your audience. And every once in a while, you show up at an event at a rally, more so during Stop the Steal. Uh, so usually you're just broadcasting. I want to ask you an Oprah question, okay? How does it feel to have to have this burden at your age leading the movement that you lead? I mean, I, I look at the facts, and it sounds like that really would suck, for lack of a better term. And you have to wake up every day under investigation, can't fly, can't book an Airbnb, can't call an Uber, can't get stuff delivered to your health. I mean— I just want to know, man, like heart, like heart to heart, <laughs> what is that like? How hard is that? Well, you know, I'll say this about my life is that it's it's really it's a lot of fun. And um, well, and I don't I don't mean to be glib when I say that. What I mean to say is it's easy to forget how hard it is because it is a lot of fun is what I'm trying to say. There's a there's a lot that's redeeming about it because, you know, I I really just hate the way things are so much. And I think a lot of people can relate to that. I mean, things are just awful in this country. Even if you're not a political dissident, there is so much like just daily frustration with everything. I mean, service isn't what it used to be. You know, everything is just whether you go to McDonald's, you go to Target, you know, you're in traffic, prices, people, like things are just a just a disaster. Women, men, I mean, it's it's a catastrophe out there. And the people that are running the country are the most insufferable of all. I mean, the kind of crap that we're subjected to on TV from the government, it's it would be a joke if it wasn't so just like so frustrating. Um, and so that I get to humiliate these people and that I get to break all the rules and and you know win over them really you know win and smirk at them and just kind of take a big dump all over the whole deal it's so it's so cathartic it's so much fun um and it's so fun that it's easy to forget how awful it is because you know just for doing that they really hate me at the end of the day because I'm very good at what I do and I'm also somebody that just doesn't care. You know, I mean, with most people, they could get them to bend the knee and apologize and grovel and conform, uh, you know, because most people, uh, there's something for them, you know, it's their girlfriend, it's their, it's their friends, it's their family, it's their money, it's their job. And so most people, when the system starts to push back, they back down. And me, I'm somebody that pushes and pushes and I get away with it because I don't care. You know, I mean, I, I, uh, you know, I'm, I'm a zealot, you know, I'm a hardcore, I'm a radical and, uh, and they hate that. You know, I, I don't just push on them and I don't just, I humiliate them and I do it with a smirk on my face and I get away with it and they take stuff from me and I, you know, I just figure out a way to turn it around. Um, 
but I have to say the older that I get, it's, it's just, uh, some days it's absolutely miserable and it's horrible and people will never understand how difficult it is. People can never fully relate to it. Um, I mean, just not being able to process credit card payments, not being able to board an airplane. I've missed weddings. I've missed all kinds of personal events. Um, and it's been impossible for me even to form normal social relationships. You know, I've been doing this ever since I was 18 years old. I mean, try getting a girlfriend when you're uh, and, you know, not that I, I don't think I'd have too much difficulty with that. But but think about like the trust issues that'd be associated with that, you know, that you're like this enemy of the state. You're vulnerable to anybody. You confide in anybody. Yeah. And, you know, people normally might go through a, a few friends over the course of five years or go through a breakup. Now imagine that anybody could take that to a journalist or take that to the media, you know, and you're, you're such a target. Um, you know, I just, my life is so different than most people's lives. The coping mechanisms that people have with like normal stuff, I just don't have access to. So it's this extremely high pressure environment Every move, every word is scrutinized, analyzed, blown up, thrown in my face. And then there's like no coping mechanism. I can never have a vulnerable moment. I can never get drunk and embarrass myself. I can never let loose. I can never, you know, go and do the things that people normally do. So, um, you know, it's one of these things where it's just it's uh, I'm a lot of times I'm just white knuckling it. And I really just got to bite the bullet. And, uh, you know, when you do that people can do that for a time, but to do that every day, all day for years and know that it's never going to change. I mean, that that's really the tough part is that this is like my life, but, um, yeah. but this is our role is I have to rise to the occasion and, and do the impossible. That's what makes a legend. So, um, well, man, yeah, I, it's it's crazy, and I appreciate you sharing that with us. And I know you, that you've got a we've got to wrap up here right away. But um, I, it seems to me like maybe one of the coping mechanisms is throwing a big, huge party in Florida with you know some of some of your crew. AFPAC's coming up, and it occurs to me that as much as people want to get rid of you, deplatform you, and and make you less popular. It seems like the popularity of the event's just growing. Can you just talk for just a quick second about what that is, what's happening there, and what your thoughts are on that? Yes. So we have our third annual political conference. It's called AFPAC. This is AFPAC 3. Uh, and, yes, it's, uh, it's next Friday in Orlando. There will be 1,000-plus people. There will be six current or former government officials there. Um, we've got, I believe it's, uh, six or seven speakers. And so every year we do one of these conferences and, and really we just try to bring everybody in the movement out, uh, and put them in one place. And every year that we do this, just magic happens because, um, you know, really it's when so much of what we do is online. And when we get together in person, uh, it's totally unpredictable, the kinds of connections and networks that are formed. And really, that's what this is. is I mean, we're trying to create a parallel uh, system here, a parallel society. And so for that to happen, people got to socialize. They got to get together. So, you know, at once there's a real utility to it because, you know, I've met some of the most important people in this movement at these gatherings in years past. Um, and, and great ideas have come out of these things. But also it's a big demonstration of force. And if you look at at this conference as a metric of our success, 
it's just exploded. You know, two years ago, uh, we started in a small hotel conference room with 100 people, no production. Fast forward two years later, we have 10 times as many people. We've got politicians there. It's in a huge venue. We spent a crazy amount of money on production. And so it's really just a barometer. And it's it's this great big um, sort of uh, what what's the it's like a showcase. It's a showcase of, uh, you know, this is our size. This is our influence. This is the America first party, you know, and it's, uh, it's something that increasingly can't be ignored. So. So, yeah, that'll be in a couple of weeks and this will be our biggest, best event I think that we've ever done. Well, great. Thanks for that, Nick. And a little tease to our audience. Jason and I are going to be at AFPAC 3. That'll be our first AFPAC, and we're going to be doing some more filming to create another uh, part, another episode of this documentary series that we've been working on. So we're excited about uh, following you a little bit throughout that and getting some interviews and uh, creating something that that people can see what AFPAC uh, is about and uh, finish the arc, the trilogy arc that uh, <laughs> yeah. that we've been working on. And so, Nick, with that, um, that's going to do it. Unfortunately, I wasn't able to get to all my nasty hit piece questions, so you're lucky <laughs> we ran out of time there. Thanks so much for taking the time. I know you don't do a lot of these, so we really appreciate it and um, look forward to sharing this with our audience and yours. Thank you. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. It was great talking to you guys. Thanks, man.